Welcome to the Market Meditations podcast. Today we're joined by John Milne, one of my best friends um, and uh, a chief medical officer for me at Zoe Capital and more importantly, an ER doc, um, helping lots of people. And he happens to be charge, in charge of the second largest or the largest real estate healthcare portfolio in the country, uh, working for Providence. And we thought we would get a little state-of-the-art update on COVID-19 and how it's affecting the hospitals and just kind of get John's take as an ER doc and administrator and uh, part human as well. <laughs> wow, that's that's quite an introduction there, Neil. Part human. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And it's probably still insufficient, John. But <laughs> well, I don't know about that. I, I appreciate it. Yeah. So I guess as what uh, what do you what do you want to know about COVID? I mean, do we, I mean, there's so many pathways. There's so much to talk about. I mean, we could we could spend the next uh, two or three hours uh, chatting about COVID if you wanted to. <laughs> no, no. First. <laughs> Well, John, what is your assessment of the the caseload um, you see coming through? Is it um, still increasing? And if so, is it um, geometric or uh, exponential? Is it uh, leveling off in any sense? What do you feel right now? Well, it, it's interesting. Uh, you you used the word feel right there. You know, so this is the you know the classic scenario where sometimes the the emotional perception of what's going on around you doesn't always align with the data. And mm-hmm. so across the country, we're you know, struggling with not having enough uh, protective equipment and masks uh, to really meet the theoretical demand that's out there. And there's just a lot of anxiety among healthcare workers that as we look at the experience in Italy, the you know, hugest, uh, or the largest uh, section of the, of the population that's getting infected are healthcare workers in many mm. cases. And so uh, every day, um, you know, as I talk to my colleagues, you know, there's a, there's a, a level of fear and anxiety as people uh, go to work and are nervous about, um, am I going to get myself infected? Am I putting my family at risk um, that's doing that? And am I taking all of the necessary precautions because there's so much we still don't really know about um, this virus and how it's behaving and all of the the potential risk factors. We're learning a lot as we go and we're learning it on the fly, but it still is at times something where uh, we just don't necessarily uh, have all of the, the picture. And so for healthcare workers, that certainly is, is a, you know, that the, 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 feeling of it is um, very different. And then sometimes also the sense of like, okay, we're, are we being overwhelmed by this? Um, Mm -hmm. But as we look at the data uh, that's there here uh, in the Seattle market where I'm at, which was really kind of the epicenter to a certain degree of uh, COVID, at least for the United States, uh, the first uh, known case of COVID to be hospitalized was at Providence Everett, which is one of the hospitals um, in my system uh, where I work, I don't practice, uh, there, uh, personally. Uh, but it was the, the first known patient in the United States was taken care of there. And then several hospitals, uh, here in the overall Seattle area had the first really, uh, uh high spike in census, uh, for the, the disease process. And what we've seen um, here over the last couple of weeks as we track uh, the data is it's been rising, but uh, the, the growth rate has actually started to level off and uh, it's not been as dramatic um, here in the last uh, week or so um, as we would have predicted and the models had um, originally predicted. And that's probably in some ways due to you know the early signs, or at least we're hoping, of some of the social distancing and other uh, fairly aggressive uh, techniques uh, that have gone into place. Um, in contrast, uh, New York is really just uh, exploded uh, here in the last uh, week or so in terms of the number of cases and certainly has passed Washington as, as an epicenter uh, for it. I was actually on a conference call uh, last night with some of my colleagues uh, from New York and listening to them to kind of describe the challenges they're facing in terms of trying to balance resources. They're not completely you know, overwhelmed or underwater yet in terms of the process uh, that what they're looking at. But as the projections are looking at it from the where the peak is, there's still a ways to go. And there's actually, if, if you want to look at it, there's a 
uh, some good uh, website that has uh, some fairly good predictive uh, models uh, on it, pretty easy to use. It's put out by the University of Washington. That's out. Uh, that's open to the public uh, to be able to do that. Uh, that I'd recommend people check out if they're interested. We will add it to the show notes for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, John, um, dis- I'm kind of you're describing a little bit about Washington and. New York. I'm kind of curious, you know, we're obviously reading a lot, but you're, you're on the front lines and, you know, you know, lots of ER docs across the country are, is it, does it seem to be growing other places beyond New York that are notable to you? Uh, so I think the entire uh, Northeast uh, in the United States is certainly um, growing rapidly. And I think, you know, that uh, given the population density that we have in the, in the Northeast, is going to be certainly be, I think, a, an area that is uh, exploding and is going to, you know, kind of continue to grow at a, at a fairly uh, robust pace. As we look at the rest of the West Coast, uh, we're seeing steady growth um, in uh, the hospitals that we have in the Los Angeles, uh, Orange County markets uh, there, into Southern California is growing, but the projections there, similar to uh, Seattle and Portland as well are not as rapid as um, as we might be have, have expected a couple of weeks ago. And San Francisco is in that kind of same boat where they've got you know hot spots. Uh, certainly, they're there. There's there are you know definitely you know continue. We're still on the upward cycle of the growth curve, but uh, there's a certain level of optimism at this point that. Uh, the growth curves may not be quite as steep along the West Coast as we might have predicted. Well, and isn't one of the issues in still predicting the entire model is that we're having an issue getting testing? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, testing is still a huge uh, challenge in terms of having accurate uh, data. And I think you know that's going to be for all of us um, in terms of the overall spike with this is because we haven't been able to as aggressively test as they had in China, uh, for example, and the public health system is not uh, doesn't have all of the same social tools in its toolkit that they have available to them in China. The concern is we're going to ultimately not have a clear sense of who are the non-symptomatic carriers of the disease or, or people who have minimal symptoms and are not able to appropriately uh, quarantine or isolate those individuals um, from the population. And so because of that, uh, you end up with um, potentially kind of a, a, a bimodal uh, spike in the curve that's going on here because we'll see we're, what we're all worried about a little bit here is that we'll get through the first wave of this and everybody uh, kind of starts seeing the downhill d- decline of the uh, the virus and then we kind of relax a lot of this the social isolation uh, procedures that are in place and without having done good widespread testing to understand you know who has the disease who who isn't uh, who who maybe has become immune to it and, re- and developed antibodies uh, against it we're going to potentially see then as uh, a second perhaps wider uh, larger um, uh, spike come in a, f- in a few more months and that you know so you may see a dip uh, in the disease process into the summer and then have it rear up again um, you know late fall uh, sort of a time frame and you know have a have a second second even bigger so wave this makes me wonder and, quite a bit right um, just in terms of uh, travel warning and all of that like I'm thinking about not traveling really too much until September, or maybe not at all. I'm kind of curious mm. whether you think that's advisable or we don't have enough data yet, or how, does, how is it you look at that? You know, your daughter is in London. Um, if she says, shall I, you know, shall I hop on a plane to come see you at the end of August, are you going to tell her no? I, I think we don't know enough yet about what that uh, looks like. I think that... Um, what we're going to need to do is adjust overall as a society to what the new normal looks like. Uh, what is the prevalence of this uh, virus that, that's out there given and what is the 
uh, overall um, infection rate that, that is happening and what, it, what are the, the underlying consequences with it as we learn more about the overall pathology and epidemiology behind what this looks like. I think it's going to be interesting to, to determine how we as a society adjust to it. And so I guess we're a you know, long way of saying, I don't know what your travel is going to look like in August, September yet, because we just don't know how this thing is behaving. So at this moment, if your daughter says, can I book a ticket at the end of August? What are you saying to her? Um, well, I, well, we flew her home a week or so ago just to get her out of London um, and before things really started to kind of erupt in London the way they have. Um, so, you know, she's back here in the United, United States now. So I you know, was obviously not uh, worried about putting her on a plane there. She's young, healthy. I, I'm not overly worried about her, especially if she's taking reasonable uh, precautions uh, from from that perspective. And I think that's where, um, do we end up as a society, uh, uh, you know, having just more overall universal precautions against infectious diseases, the way you see, you know, people in Asia are wearing face masks as a much more routine, uh, sort of part of their lives, uh, than they, than there's a more of a cultural norm that it is here in the United States. I'm, I'm wondering if we begin to adopt some of those sorts of practices on a more routine sort of a basis as people learn to live with the risks associated with contracting a, a, a virus like this. Yeah. And, um, you know, John, you talked about the pathology of the disease. Um, what are you seeing? And is it similar in any way to um, previous outbreaks you've dealt with, like other H1N1 um, type viruses or anything that uh, we might have had in recent memory? Yeah, so H1N1 is is influenza, and mm -hmm. influenza is a, is a completely different family of viruses, and mm -hmm. the pathology of what, what you're seeing in um, uh, in terms of what it does to the lungs and how it, uh, how it behaves to the body actually has a fairly uh, distinctive and different uh, clinical picture uh, to it. So this uh, is a virus that seems to be uh, creating a, a much more robust uh, infiltrative type pneumonia picture when we look at it on uh, on CT scan or on X-ray, and the and has a much broader uh, level of multi-organ failure for those individuals who are susceptible to it. The numbers of of patients who, um, when they get sick get really sick, um, with it. Uh, and, and some, and the, the, um, the death rate, um, with it and the problem is with it, with, you know, quoting any kind of, uh, mortality statistics at this point is we don't, because we aren't testing widespread, we don't have a really good right. denominator right. in, in terms right. of being able to, to say what the rates, um, are, but it's looking like, this is uh, potentially a more lethal virus than what we would have had um, with uh, with influenza. So if we think back, you know, this is this is a coronavirus. So that is in the same class as the SARS or the MERS uh, outbreaks that were you know a decade or so ago. Uh, and so uh, this, you know, those types of viruses um, did not uh, spread quite as, as much as, as this one um, is. And so um, what is the, um, the, the infection rates, I guess, and transmission patterns seem to be somewhat different uh, in comparison uh, to those. But in terms of the clinical picture of, of how, how the impact of those viruses, because those are, those are both coronaviruses, um, so the same fa virus family as this one is uh, you know, causing potentially higher, um, higher death rates. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. Uh, you know, the, we're all searching for inferences, and uh, you know, people have reached back to the Spanish flu pandemic, of course, um, notably for the economic dislocation as well as the lives lost. And of course, that came in um, three waves before it sort of petered out. Um, that was, as you mentioned, an H1N1 uh, or influenza type of virus. The um, SARS and MERS, do they exhibit the same pattern? 
Um, the SARS and MERS, yeah, are, are uh, like I said, coronaviruses. So it's mm-hmm. the same virus family as this one. So mm-hmm. we're anticipating we will see uh, uh, hopefully a, a, at least a similar analog to what that looks like. Um, mm-hmm. But it's still just too early to know. Yeah. I'm, yeah, with uh, with Spanish flu, of course, the second wave was well, the deadly. most deadly. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and it came back, I guess, in a more virulent strain is what I understand from my um, study of it. It seemed to have yeah. mutated rather quickly. Yeah, and that, that is the challenge with these. So um, these viruses, uh, or the, the, the um, coronavirus is, is what we refer to as an RNA virus. And um, so it and just kind of refers to the, the type of genetic material that it's using in terms of its uh, um, transmission. Um, and the challenge with RNA viruses is they tend to be uh, they tend to mutate faster than other types of viruses. So I think that's part of what really worries us um, about this um, type of a, of a virus is that the, the overall um, potential for it to, and there's at least two different strains that we're aware of right now um, from the testing based on the, the population in China. Uh, it, it appears that that is uh, that there there's like a second more virulent strain that's mixed in with this. So mm. still more to know as far as what the prevalence of those two uh, strains look like, and there may be more at this point um, uh, that are out there. Mm-hmm. I, I'm I'm curious. You know, obviously, we're, everybody at this point is familiar with social distancing, the stay at home orders. Um, I don't know. There's probably masks. Uh, you know, having more zinc because there seems to be run on them. On Zinc on Amazon. They can run on lots of yeah. Yeah. Um, You know, washing hands. John, what other things, you know, you're in the front line of this, right? On, on the few times you get a chance to work a clinical shift or have to work a clinical shift now. Um, what other things can we do to protect ourselves? So I think it's it's important to to recognize what this virus is in terms of how it's it's transmitted and and we didn't really totally understand it at first um, either and so the it led to some uh, kind of inconsistent uh, recommendations coming out of the CDC about what type of protective gear and whatnot you needed to uh, wear to uh, be able to prevent the spread. But this is uh, what we refer to, uh, or, or what we use is, is what we call droplet precautions. So this is a, a virus that isn't uh, airborne in the same way that like the measles virus is or Ebola, um, which are, are floating in, the, in, in terms of the virus itself. Um, out in the in the airstream, and as set, as such, are much more contagious. The this is because it this requires droplet transmission. So when somebody sneezes or coughs, uh, it, um, it is the the virus particle is traveling within that moisture droplet. And so what will happen is um, it can get caught in the airstream with a droplet, obviously. Um, and aerosolize that way and, and move move through a, a building. But usually because it's in it, be carried in a droplet, um, it has, uh, it, it's, it's responding to gravity. And so it's, it's got a certain size to it. And so when somebody sneezes or coughs, the, the blast zone, so to speak, is uh, about six feet. And so that's the whole point of the social distancing is that if somebody sneezes or, cough, sneezes or coughs, if you're six feet away uh, from them, you're unlikely to get direct uh, exposure from uh, uh, those micro aerosolized droplets that carry the virus. The bigger problem is when somebody sneezes or coughs and that that thin layer uh, then of moisture either lands on a surface or then somebody coughs into their hand and now touches something and transfers that moisture onto a surface. And then you're, you touch the surface and now that, that thin layer of, of moisture is transferred onto your hands and you touch your eyes or your mouth or a, a, your mucous membranes and you're transferring it um, that way. And that's why hand washing and social distancing really are the, the staples of it because you're trying to make sure that those droplets are not uh, getting 
exposed uh, to it. So the questions then become about, you know, types of masks and whatnot. There's this, you know, the, the questions about N95 respirators, which is really the highest end uh, mask that we use uh, that really has the, uh, a very tight um, uh, you know, mesh essentially inside there that's preventing um, things that are from going through it. And those um, were, are really critical for the for those aerosolized uh, type uh, viruses, like we're talking about, like with measles and stuff. Uh, it's not as important uh, here with a droplet. The droplets, uh, what we've learned with this, once we realized it was not um, uh, an aerosolized virus, we're we not having to require um, staff in the hospital to be using those N95 masks in the same way that they originally had been. Many, unless they're involved with a procedure or some sort of a thing that could potentially um, aerosolize the virus, which means break the break the droplets open and allow the virus to float free outside of the, the droplet for a period of time. Um, but so for you know the average person, you know a surgical mask, um, if you've got a family member who's coughing, can help with the spread because it doesn't, you know, um, it covers their mouth all the time, and so they're not uh, exhaling or breathing breathing that. Um, uh, those, those droplets out. Um, but otherwise it really is just that good hand hygiene, um, and understanding how, what, where the risk factors are, um, in terms of being able to, uh, to prevent, uh, transmission. And then, you know, your comment about, uh, you know, bulking up your immune system with zinc or vitamin C or any of those sorts of things. Um, I guess the, the, the science is out as far as whether it makes uh, much difference or not, but I know lots of people swear by it. And if, if it doesn't hurt you, probably is the not a bad thing is always do. good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, John, so if the, um, N95 masks are not, the most, um, uh, in the most acute sense, the thing that the um, healthcare workers need, what would you identify? I guess the Congress today gave as part of its $2.2 trillion <laughs> measure. Sorry, sorry, I can't help but laugh at that. Trying not to choke on that number. <laughs> yeah, well, I think what your perspective here, Chris, of whether or not that's going to do anything uh, with uh, well, that, that's, yeah, Hold on, the that's the second part of the podcast. Yeah. You're welcome to stay for it. Oh, yeah, okay. you're welcome to join in, John. We're <laughs> we'll transition to that part in five minutes. All right, you yeah, have to stay tuned and listen to the updates. Got it. Yeah, $150 billion is um, pledged to hospitals. And, of course, the form remains to be seen. But what would you um, like to see that allocated toward? What do you think the most acute areas of need are? So... Yeah, no, I think it's great. So I think I think what we what we refer to as uh, you know PPE or personal protective equipment. So this yeah. is gowns, masks, face shields, and the, the masks themselves are 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 more the conventional surgical masks. Uh, mm-hmm. What we're using now, we still use the N95s for certain, like I said, procedural things, which are you know the kind of the higher end. Uh, mm-hmm. Um, mask, but the N95s are actually really pretty uncomfortable to wear. They're kind of hard to breathe through, and, and um, it's uh, much more comfortable for all of us to be wearing a, a more standard surgical-type mask uh, that's there. Mm-hmm. But the supplies of those are challenging because most of those historically have been manufactured in China, and so the supply chain uh, has gotten um, uh, disrupted in all of this, and the combination of that you know, certainly has uh, made it such that, you know, we, there is a, uh, there is a supply need, uh, for those. We've got domestic manufacturing ramping up to be able to, to meet those needs. But I think that's a, definitely an area where some of that congressional funding needs to be deployed. The other big one is ventilators and, and mm-hmm. the, the, the need for patients when they truly get sick to be on fairly sophisticated ventilatory support is, uh, is going to be important. And we really, as we, depending on the, on the projections of the models, uh, that you look at, we're going to be way behind the curve on the overall, the supply of ventilators, uh, mm-hmm. because it's, so it's should we stock up on those routine. along with the toilet paper, Chris and I have been trying to, you know, take over in the West coast. Uh, yeah, you can go to the hospital and bring your own ventilator. Is you that know, what you're actually, oddly, a friend, um, of my, a mentor of mine, suggested that he'd been reading um, more than four articles about how people are buying and stocking ventilators for their family because they're afraid that they won't be able to get them at the hospital. 
Uh, you know, that's I have not seen uh, those those stories. It wouldn't surprise me. I I wouldn't necessarily recommend it. You know, so you don't necessarily know what you're buying um, and whether it's any good or it's going to be the type that'll that will actually um, you know provide you the level of care you need. But uh, I, but overall, ventilator supply I think is going to be a, a critical piece. I think that's in terms of the one piece of medical equipment that needs to be there. And then the other piece is, is funding, funding the drug trials that we need. There are a couple of uh, potentially promising antiviral agents that are, that are coming out. And some, obviously the vaccine work is what will prevent future outbreaks. It won't help the immediate uh, process. But I think that's where you know, a chunk of the funding as well needs to go. And then frankly, the other piece you know, in terms of hospital funding is being able to just maintain the infrastructure, the the economics uh, for all of us, because basically the hospitals have cut and canceled all of their elective surgery, which is basically our primary revenue stream. So we are now in a situation where almost all of our normal revenue has gone to zero and our expenses uh, are going through the roof. So we've gone through more masks, uh, our surgical masks here in the last month um, as a system than we did in the entire year last year. So um, is this a death of a thousand cuts for some small systems or small, some rural hospitals in your mind? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm actually significantly worried about, um, about the ability of some hospitals to survive this. If you didn't have a strong balance sheet going in, which uh, many didn't, and hospitals are typically running on a you know two or three percent margin on a, in a in a in a good year, um, this is not a uh, you know from an economic perspective. This is potentially going to put uh, big chunks of the healthcare system out of business. Um, the interesting thing though, is it's going to, it's also going to change, I think, potentially patient behavior. So we have overnight um, almost flipped um, our health system in terms of access to and utilization of digital and virtual platforms. So for example, we, we run a, uh, we've had a virtual express care, urgent care kind of a, of a product um, in the market for a number of years now. And we were doing here about uh, anywhere from, you know, 30 to 60 visits a day um, on that uh, virtual um, uh, express care platform. That spiked uh, to 1,500 visits a day. Called? Just in case uh, everyone's going to show uh, 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 Providence, uh, Providence virtual Perfect. express care. Uh, and so the, uh, you know, the, you know, the 600 fold increase effectively that we've had in the utilization of that platform, uh, is if it's, if people start getting used to using it and then recognize that they, um, didn't, uh, you know, don't need to go to the doctor all the time for, for things that, you know, is certainly going to change consumer behavior. The other big one is that we have, you know, all, most of our primary care clinics and our routine specialty care clinics are all closed right now because of the, uh, the virus. We're not wanting to bring kind of routine checkups in. And so as a system, um, last week we deployed, um, 7,000 uh, accounts for our physicians across the system with Zoom as the telehealth platform to be able to start utilizing it for routine primary care type visits um, with that. And so if that, and if that trend sticks, it's fundamentally going to accelerate for us uh, the utilization of, uh, of telehealth and, and digital as a as a platform that we've had the technology for a while now. It just has not had the market penetrance, and this you know event may be the catalyst that truly uh, transforms the way healthcare is delivered in the United States. Mm-hmm. You know, John, and I don't mean to take so much more of your time, though you're welcome to join us for the economic port and and quiz Chris as well. Um, one of my favorite things to do on this podcast uh, to show that we're all bad at it now um, is predictions. <laughs> Chris knows exactly where this is going. <laughs> oh, this is the test portion of, of, uh, of the conversation, what you're saying. It's the part where Neil asks, 
for numbers to come out of the head. <laughs> well, no, no, this will be ready. interesting. I'll ask you too, Chris. Um, we'll just take a. In, do you think we're going to see another pandemic in our lives of this scale, Chris? It's just a yes or a no. Um, you're younger than I, maybe. Um, a pandemic of this scale, I would say no. We humans will certainly so, see. John, more. do you think we're going to see a pandemic of this scale in our lives again? I'm younger, yes, than you are. I I, I hope not. Is the is the short short answer, but um, I'm worried that we will. Yeah, I actually think we will. Um, I, I'm going to say. I'll take myself out of the equation. Um, Chris is the elder statesman here. We're going to see one again in Chris's life. Mm. Uh, probably. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know about this scale, though. This virulence T is pretty Tanner, remarkable. you're on with us, and you're the youngest and um, helping us out with this podcast. <laughs> you, you can feel free to chime in. Do you think we'll see a, a, pod, a podcast? We think you see a podcast in your life. Do you think we'll see another pandemic um, in your life? There's no difference. Pandemic no <laughs> <laughs> yeah, podcast. Yeah, podcasts have definitely gone viral. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I think we should switch over. John, we really appreciate that. I hope you'll. John, thank you for your time today. And if uh, you've got the time, we'd love to really. keep yeah, you. And we can now we can you know really quiz Chris and you know um, put him on the lie detector test. Um, well, I, I appreciate the invitation. I need to drop away to another obligation, but uh, this has been fun. Always good to talk to you both. Yeah, thank you, John, again for your time, and again, uh, best of luck, John. On those please stay lines. safe. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Sounds good. Bye. -bye. Have a good one, gentlemen. Thank you. You know, before we get to, like, um, the circus that is Congress passing these these bills, which, you know, I guess are good, too. But I'm just kind of curious, generally, what observations you're seeing or what, what things are changing for you in terms of uh, clients and all that kind of stuff. Um, well, I think first for us all, the... Um, speed at which this has unfolded is astonishing. It's pretty remarkable. Um, that's reflected in, um, in our psyches, but certainly the big Rorschach of the financial markets that um, expressed panic and fear um, and even pause is reflected in those stock market averages. The, um, Many people, I think, are sort of frozen by the speed at which this um, has unfolded. And I'd also say the political response has been rapid as well. And the Fed's response has been pretty remarkably swift. So I'm uh, really never a fan of right. bailouts. But we'll say that I think the Fed's role as a lender of last resort, the kind of um, original raison d'etre, the reason for being of all central banks from the Riksbank, the oldest in Sweden to the Bank of England to our Fed, is really to um, ease the credit crunch when we have a mismatch between um, you know, assets and liabilities and in the short term when we have a liquidity problem. And they've done that um, remarkably. Um, it's been going on for a while pre-COVID-19, of course, in the repo market, but it's accelerated greatly. And the commercial mortgage-backed funding facilities and the um, facilities for the money market funds, et cetera, seem to have, at least in some ways, quelled the markets and brought some liquidity back, which is good, um, lest it could have been worse. So um, I think just to me, the speed of all this is pretty remarkable. And, you know, we've thought about this for years, Neil. Um, we've even talked about just the rise of electronic trading which most days is about 86% of all trading done by computers, algorithms, um, indexing, et cetera, and um, how rapidly that could unwind as well. So I, I, I think, um, yeah, that's to me the most remarkable thing. I don't think it's over, though, the, the market swoon. You know, each of the previous declines have 
led to uh, over a 50% Yes, change but they didn't inject large percentages of the entire GDP in lots of different ways. Yeah, 10% of our GDP today was uh, in this. Is, is it that high now? So do you think we're going to get to 10% of our total GDP in bailouts? Well, $2.2 trillion fund this bailout. I guess it's 20. Um, I mean, yeah, I guess it's a mixed so the, bag. What the GDP is, what, $24 Yeah. Billion? yeah. 24 trillion? Yeah, 24, 24 trillion. trillion. Yeah. Sorry. Right. Is a trillion a lot anymore? <laughs> <laughs> well, and then the billion and a half yeah. that went in before that was sold up in 90 minutes. Or sorry, the trillion and a half. I'm not used to using that number. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we're 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 so, up there. It's like throwing throwing it into a chasm. But, and, and it doesn't right? sound like we're done, right? Because that was the Republicans' bill that passed. Now we're going to see the Democrats' bill that passes. Um, and it seems like we're going to throw more in the chasm well, we, if we can get to fifteen percent oh, of sure. the total yeah. <laughs> GDP. Yeah. Do you really still yeah. bet against the economy having the same jitters? And, has there been well, an experiment like I, this in history I, I, before, I, by the way? Like, you're, you're a pretty good historian. Um, probably not. Um, nothing is, of course, an exact parallel. The, there have been, of course, many, 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 many attempts at printing money to stave off financial ruin. Um, but we, we're, we're fairly over-indebted um, generally. The households are probably in the best shape they've been in a couple of decades in terms of debt to disposable personal income. But it doesn't mean, uh, it doesn't augur well for GDP, which is best thought of as total sales, you know, in the economy. So, and we've got these big gaps um, and so many unknowns, Neil, will, will this flu, uh, this, uh, I'm sorry, this coronavirus pandemic mirror the flu virus of a hundred years ago and have you know successive waves, um, maybe with the second wave being more virulent. So will will the economy need to shut down again in September if we are able to revive it in in the warm weather? Will the cool weather again? August, September, October of two thousand of nineteen eighteen was the largest death toll in the U.S. from the Spanish flu. Again, you know we just heard from John that they're not uh, exactly the same different families, but still. Um, if we let our guard down and, and uh, cease social distancing in some of the new norms as the weather cools again and we get on the other side of summer, um, will we have a recurrence? Will that create more economic dislocation? Almost certainly there'll be infections that last throughout, but uh, what that pattern looks like, we don't know. And then what the effect of the on the economy will be, we don't know. I just find it very interesting. This is the first crisis we've had in a very long time that didn't start in the financial plumbing. <laughs> so, right? But we've been having a problem with financial plumbing for a while. Cool. So, you know, at the same time. Right, right, right. But when you have a problem in the financial plumbing, you're, can, you can use plumbing yes. tools to fix it. Here, we're, we're really fighting an enemy. I mean, it's been likened to war in the the requisitions of the government, the bills that are passed are like wartime bills. You know, this kind of spending is extraordinary. Um, yeah, I don't know. Will it choke off the regular economy too, if it's sort of wartime spending? I don't know what the right, um, the proper corollary is, but you know, the, the highest government indebtedness we had was, the government of Britain after the Napoleonic Wars. Um, so there, the the debt was um, something like 440%, 480% of GDP. And what is ours today? Um, oh, our, yeah. our debt load today? Um, yeah, it's about 110%. So, so we can go another so 300%, Chris. We've got a bigger credit card. What's the problem? Most of the research um, has shown that any debt to GDP numbers that are greater than 100% uh, severely hamper or even cripple the economy. Most um, economies can't handle it and ultimately default. Um, a few are very efficient, like Japan, the US, um, many economies in Europe. They're efficient at tax collection. <laughs> Not like Greece or Italy necessarily. Or 
Um, and so they, yeah, yeah, or India, right? So those those countries that have general compliance and a good tax collection policy have been able to um, withstand higher debt to GDP levels, but uh, effectively still you're crowding out private borrowing. I mean, there's this argument now because we've gotten so used to the Fed expanding their balance sheet, basically money printing, that we think it's a, a money tree that can last forever. And this is a delusion that's, again, plagued mankind since time immemorial, from the Romans to you know the French and the Assignat inflation to all the different uh, bubbles, from the South Sea bubble, et cetera, to the Mississippi scheme. Um, when the government slash um, central banks expand their balance sheets, printing money, um, ultimately there is a day of reckoning. The credit markets are usually the ones that implode. And though this is an external event, that's what so, we really have to watch so talk for. talk to me Where's about the, inflation, depressionary, you know, um, kind of attributes to America. You, you know, do you... Do you believe there's a probability, how's that, not a, um, we'll say, a, a greater than 10% chance that we could all end mm -hmm. up homeless as a result of, of the pandemic? There's a tough question for you. No, no, I don't think that. Um, I think we'll, we're showing signs of um, inflating this away, I guess. Um, yeah, it means tough, tough questions, right? Sorry. Yeah, these are no, it's okay. It, it um, there are so many possibilities in so many ways. Like the, it's generally presumed that the British government, following the Napoleonic Wars, did not default. They too um, reduced the value of the currency. They created inflation. Basically, they inflated the debt away, um, and they managed to do it because there was still growth in the empire. Um, and the revenues were growing. I don't know that that's the case in the U.S. today. That there's a quite a corollary. I know we're going to try to talk to me about what that away. means, right? You, you and um, I've talked before. Um, pretty interesting. Before you, 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 you know, I took economics in college and in high school, and that started to wake me up. And then I right, met you, right? And right. that started to really wake me up to to really understanding a little more of of the economy yeah. and you know the things i saw and how they were interacting and reacting and i remember us talking about this really interesting point when my parents moved to this country in 76 before i was born that that was probably the peak mm -hmm. um spending power americans had um somewhere inside that late 70s uh spot and you're saying we uh -huh. were kind of starting to get back yeah. there again um and then obviously I saw and experienced, you know, the 80s and 90s thinking that that wasn't quite as good um, uh, in terms of like their spending power. What's our spending power mm -hmm. going to be like over the next five or 10? Do you think this inflation is really going to hurt it in ways we can't predict? And um, I'm just trying to get a feel for it, right? Yeah, I have no idea even yeah. how to ask all of the questions that I think um, your clients must be asking, that my LPs will be asking, that... Uh, yeah. Your wife is wondering as a school yeah, teacher. Yeah, yeah, I would think um, there are several ways to answer that question. But the first thing is, you know, when, um, when you create currency um, without any new assets um, being created, um, you're not expanding the pool of assets, you're just expanding the claims, the claim tickets on those assets. Each claim ticket is diluted. It's worth less. You haven't enlarged the asset pool. You've just um, created more confetti, right? <laughs> those those uh, little certificates that lay claim or are measures of. So the you're basically diluting the value of of money. You know, it's often said inflation is rising right. prices or reflected in rising prices, but that's really falling money, right? So you're in, to inflate away the debt, you can continue to create these claims, these currencies, these do, these dollar bills electronically or in paper or whatever form. Um, and you're paying for debt you've incurred today with cheaper and cheaper certificates, uh, these paper <laughs> dollars in the future or electronic dollars. So you're, you're 
paying tomorrow with cheaper currency. That's why uh, most in the banking system, of course, in, uh, insist on a positive carry that you have an interest rate, a cost of money you charge to borrowers that has an inflation rider built in or accommodates for some expected inflation. So if you think inflation will average 3% a year, then you know you should be lending at yeah. inflation plus 2% seems to have been a historical So norm, do you, do you right? think, you know, so, you, Santiago's Frappuccino, Santiago is Chris's son, um, is his Frappuccino going to go up by 5% or 20% over the next two years? Yeah, you know, in the... Uh, there's a larger question too. You know, you can see it in currencies around the world that are not the dollar. The dollar has a very enviable position of being the reserve currency like the British pound was a hundred years ago. And um, that means that it is part of every financial institution's reserves. And, co and so it's collected and held and sometimes even used in transactions in places far away from here, Latin America and you Zimbabwe. know, people will take dollars over their <laughs> local currency. Zimbabwe, yeah, right, right, right. Um, so, you know, the Russian ruble just um, tanked. It went from roughly 35 to 65. So you see um, these wild swings in currencies um, against the dollar in this crisis, too. And certainly with the oil markets changing for Russia, that had a big, big effect on the currency. But um, this... Those kinds of swings in the value of the dollar um, are probably not going to happen, but more of a gradual, um, maybe with some episodic shifts, uh, decline in its purchasing power. And yes, I think the Frappuccino is going to be in dollar terms, um, many, many multiples. multiples of what it is today. Yeah, you know, at the historical 3% plus, 70 years or so we have data, the last data point I have is the end of 2018. So, but uh, roughly 3.3% CPI inflation, which translates to a, a, um, a doubling in prices every 21 years or so, 20 years. So, so you would expect that, um, prices would double and then in double the next again. Two, but I was thinking about the next two years. <laughs> Oh, the next two years. Oh, no, I don't know. I think the depends on which you're I'm, trying I'm still to, talking about Santiago's so Frappuccino the, at Starbucks. I, yeah. Um, well, the, the inflation appears in many ways. He'll have a probably a smaller cup, maybe with uh, more substituted That's ingredients. That's probably better for <laughs> all of us anyway. Um, yeah, maybe, maybe. Yeah, and the same price point, or it'll be it'll be more expensive. Yeah, I think there's a, a a shift happening. I think there's been tremendous inflation in certain asset prices, but it hasn't spilled over yet into consumer prices fully, um, and that we'll probably begin to see some sort of inflation in in commodities and agricultural commodities as well as hard commodities. Um, that's usually kind of a big regime shift, um, and with the actions that the central banks are taking, the the um, massive stimulus and money printing and, uh, um, environment we're in, that will uh, weaken the dollar. But uh, how quickly companies abandon the dollar as the reserve currency, because I don't know what alternatives we really yet have, um, requires a little more imagination about the future. But still, right now, it's still the reserve currency and probably will stay so for the next two years. So the demand for the dollars, there's a sort of floor in the demand. At least so, you know, appear. I'm going to share some of the data I gained from PitchBook and uh, a webinar they did. Uh, PitchBook is owned by Morningstar, and they are probably the lead data gatherer on uh, startup companies in the world, um, if not number two. They're very, very large, obviously. Um, and, and I just mm -hmm. want you to, because mm -hmm. I love predictions, I just want you to tell me whether you kind of agree or disagree. That's all. This is easy. <laughs> Agree or disagree? Nothing more. No, no ad lib extra. Um, you, you know, they, they okay. kind of said that they expected angel and seed rounds um, to be maintained, and they expected people to 
continue to invest in angel and seed rounds. Do you agree or disagree? Mm -hmm. Oh, we're playing. I disagree. I think it's going to fall a little bit. I disagree. Um, liquidity issues are going to keep recurring because of the credit markets problems. Yes. So I, I'm, I agree with you, Neil, and disagree. <laughs> valuations at early stage are likely to fall. However, early stage valuations tend to oscillate within a range. I agree with that. I don't think we'll see. I agree as well. Um, you know, the example we've used lots of times is Juno Diagnostics. I don't think we'd see a company as healthy as that um, really fall out of its valuation so largely in its first round. Um, mm -hmm. the, oh, during the current crisis, later stage deals will likely be hit the hardest. I totally agree with that. Because those are already real businesses. So yes. now they have to... Um, now they have to start to follow norms. It's the rubber no, in the road. Now no, no more VC exuberance. Yeah, um, no, no. Right. Um, over leveraged corporations will dramatically lower revenue prospects, creating weakness in corporate M&A in general. I agree with that. Yeah. That's huge. Yes. So, oh, I so agree. tell me, the, the portfolio I we have agree. together today, you, you've got a piece of it. Um, are you more worried five years mm -hmm. from now that these companies won't be able to exit? Um, I think that they're, uh, no, because I'm, I'm not sure I know what the exit will look like, right? I think there's still um, many, many different possible outcomes. If you asked me, though, if I think they'd exit in the form of an initial public offering in the stock market, I would say yes. The possibility is lower five years from now than it is today. If that's the liquidity event, if it is, um, you know, buyout from a larger PE fund or a, a private enterprise, private company. I think that's I think where 90% that of the transactions are like anyway. And I, I'm not always necessarily concerned about smaller mm -hmm. when you can't do something about it you know i am worried about obviously valuations but um i think that's true that the valuations will probably not be but even some of the companies we're looking today, at if they were sure. cut by 30 percent on the exit 30 percent we'd be really happy with the gains i believe mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. they've got a few more mm -hmm. statements here is there a precedent for that, Neil? When you looked at two thousand eight and nine, when things were really in the deep freeze, then what were what was were there any deals by which you could sort of gauge? Um, it's a really good question. You know, I I wasn't investing then; I was the entrepreneur then, so I wasn't paying as much attention. But I will answer mm -hmm. this question for you on our next podcast. Mm -hmm. um, that will be great. I'll wait with uh, great <laughs> anticipation. I'm sure there's very good data for this, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I'm, I'm betting yeah, it's, yeah, ex yeah. it's almost Just the exact thought. same reactions for at least a couple of years, right? Before exuberance starts to, I mean, mm -hmm. the human mind is fickle. It's pretty easy to forget. And um, we get overly exuberant about things in general as a population. So I bet it was, I bet that it's going to mirror something similar beforehand um we're likely to see continued moves towards uh specialist vcs and pe's and large multi-strategy players yeah i thought that for a long time i agree with that statement yeah um, i agree more as well. established secondary market offers um to unlock uh illiquid deals and i've thought that for a very long while as well that that's going to happen yeah yeah, um, I agree. Oh, the highest end of the market will be crunched. Yes, I always expect the Ubers of the world to be crunched. <laughs> and when they're oh. not, I'm... Oh, that, that's, <laughs> that, that, that's a fait accompli. That's a <laughs> foregone conclusion after we were. That, that, that whole business model is dead now, Neil. You know, we talked about coronavirus um, and the uneven effects of it, economically speaking, you know, obviously travel, tourism, leisure, 
um, being disproportionately affected. But um, I think the stay at home has killed the yeah. remote work. Well, you know, it's uh, interesting. I used to get lots office. of questions as a fund about being decentralized. I bet those questions are over. <laughs> right? Because I always wanted just the yeah. best people who are intrinsically motivated. It didn't matter to me whether Eric Tan's in Orange County or, or Vancouver or San Antonio. <laughs> I just wanted Eric Tan. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> so, right. No right. longer will right. people look right. at me strangely for that. Um, are there any other like yeah. closing messages or anything else you want to share specifically? Let's actually just change it to your um, specific 120 families that you care deeply about and are your clients and people you think about daily, mm-hmm. literally. Yeah, I think, um, you know, it's very fascinating in my business too. And, and on the retail side, we hear a lot from our clients. And so it, it's almost um, like having a, uh, um, 120, 240 points of radar out there, right? We can feel their um, fear and their panic as well as um, their trust. And I, um, I think, you know, when clients really want to be in the stock market, Aggressively, it's a, a warning sign because they're contrary indicators. I think when people are very, very, very fearful, like last week, it was very palpable that there's probably a rally coming, like a relief. Um, again, another contrary indicator. But I would say generally, people have been a little cavalier in some ways Wait, about this. The is what you want to markets. say to your clients to end the podcast um, episode? Think... <laughs> no, no, I would just like to say, I think it's still. It's still important for people to consider and, and be cautious. There are a lot of uh, investment landmines. We've seen the market sell off very, very rapidly, and we've seen it recover. Um, and again, it's uneven how um, this break in the economic uh, engine will affect different businesses. There are many who will survive, of course. We'll all um, come out of the other end of this. Um, but when we look back, I think we'll have to think about those companies today uh, that make the most sense, which have the strongest balance sheets, of course, which um, um, can even um, weather this storm pretty uh, in in one piece because it, it'll come in waves. I guess what I'm saying, too, is um, we shouldn't be uh, too premature. I think there are going to be more bargains forthcoming. The opportunity sets changing so rapidly that um, we should just be on our guard and uh, keep our hope up, but also expect so, better actually, and better things I, it, to come. It sounds like then you are also even more confident um, of your portfolio at this moment. Wow, that's a tough one. This moment I only. Think, yeah, um, I know it can change yes. tomorrow. No, well, I, uh, right. Uh, but I'd say, too, I'm trying... Um, you know, when I think about the portfolio, I think mostly of the long view, um, because today's investments won't really flower, I I believe, for 12 to 18 months in the minimum, um, if we're very, very lucky. Um, uh, and then beyond that, I think uh, we have a great chance of having made very successful bets. Yeah, you, thought, you told um, me like two years, you, you expect time. to start to see... Is how you're looking at some of the portfolio, some of the portfolio, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, we we're um, bullish on the energy sector, but what's that mean right now when no one's driving and airlines are grounded and um, the demand has been destroyed? It's estimated, you know, we'll um, see a four billion, I'm sorry, four million barrel per day decline in in consumption. Uh, on oil in the U.S., that's a, a big uh, drop in demand. But I think it'll bounce back by the end of the year and probably in the first quarter of next year. Um, will that resuscitate companies that are now on the ropes? I don't know. Um, but if they have the balance sheet to survive it, yes. Um, and then beyond that, I think, too, a price war will be over. Um, we'll see things sort of start to normalize. And that's really the environment for which I'm investing so, um, today. Chris, is there any way, and we don't do too many commercials because we're both kind of against it. What's the best way for somebody to reach you who wants to actually uh, consider going through your gauntlet of trials to potentially become a client? 
They can visit the website at uh, hbawealth.com, H Hotel, Bravo, Alpha, Wealth, like money or health, <laughs> really, the basis of that word, um, dot com. Um, I can be reached uh, by email as well at chris at hbawealth.com. Both ways are great to connect and uh, directly from the website, of course, you can reach out. Um, to contact. Yeah, I, I actually want to tell you it's a gauntlet. Chris doesn't want you as your as his client unless you want to think long term, <laughs> just like he does about his portfolio. <laughs> Is that okay that I add that in there? She want me to edit that out. Well, I, uh, it makes the most sense for our thinking and interest to be aligned, but it requires that I'm, of course, here to educate and help clients along um, in their thinking about investing. Um, you know, uh, the we're really honored to help people with their savings, and savings is foregone consumption. That should do something for you. <laughs> Otherwise, you should just consume it. <laughs> uh, if you're giving something up for it, it's a really a, a kind of sacred charge and trust. So um, we want to manage that very carefully to protect and grow it. Um, and again, everything has its season, and it just takes time for ideas to flower. Sometimes they flower quickly, but generally speaking, nature has its own schedule. The investment cycle and the business cycle run on their own schedule, tied to the human cycle, but nothing we can control. So. <laughs> Thanks everybody for joining us today.